0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Craig B. Weldon about experiences from his career and leadership lessons learned. Greg Weldon, welcome back to the Human Capital Innovations podcast.
1: Thanks, I appreciate it, John. This is our fourth, I think.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you back. It's it's just been a pleasure talking with you uh, in this series where we we touch base about your book uh, around leadership. Um, your your book is titled "Leadership: The Art of Inspiring People to Be Their Best." And you've won uh, awards with it. It's an international bestseller on Amazon. Uh, you've had some really great success with it. In the, in the previous three episodes, we've explored different topics uh, and portions of the book and the lessons that you've learned from your career and, and, and sharing that and passing that along to all the listeners. Today, we're going to continue that and explore a little bit more around the role of personalities in leadership, both our own personality and the personalities of those we lead, So we can know how to best um, lead our people, the priorities that we have, how we prepare to lead, and some other related uh, principles and topics uh, in relation to the the latter portion of your book. As we get started, I wanted to share Craig's bio again with everyone uh, in case you didn't catch uh, any of the previous three episodes in the series. Craig, Beweldon. Uh, His leadership journey began as an Eagle Scout at age 14. 30 years later, he was the youngest general in the United States Army. Combined with another nine years as a member of the Senior Executive Service with the U.S. Marine Corps, he has led thousands of soldiers, sailors, Marines, and civilians while serving 10 years in Europe and another 12 in the Pacific. In 2011, he was inducted into the Purdue University Tri-Service ROTC Hall of Fame. In uh, In March of 2019, he published Leadership, the Art of Inspiring People to Be Their Best, winning three national book awards and attaining number one international bestseller status on Amazon. He is now a global Fortune 500 speaker and lives in Bluffton, South Carolina. Uh, again, it's, it's it's wonderful to have you back. Thank you for joining us. Um, before we launch in, anything that you would like to share with listeners um, about yourself or any current updates uh, before we dive into the conversation?
1: Yeah, I've actually joined a uh, company called Volantro, which is a new startup that's going to be working on hypervelocity technology for both military and commercial application and many of your listeners may wonder what hypervelocity technology is but it's basically going very 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 fast. So that's new, you know we've got some very very bright young uh, aeronautical engineers as part of the company and and we're going to start uh, in fact we're doing our first briefing later this afternoon to a retired four-star general. So. Yeah, that's a, a new twist to my life.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's wonderful. That, that's excellent. Uh, and, and wish you the best in that endeavor. Uh, it sounds super interesting. I suppose you can touch on that a little bit as we go through our conversation and share uh, some, of, some of what's going on uh, behind the scenes there as well. Um, so as we get started today, uh, again, you, you tell so many great stories in your book. Uh, you, you really have mastered the art of storytelling and using stories to, to uh, explain principles in a relatable way that people can connect with. Uh, one of the, the chapters, you, you specifically talk about managing risk.
1: So When I was 17 years old, I worked at a camp in England, and the camp director asked me the next summer to run a rapid river uh, adventure for 30 teenagers ages 14 and 15. And I was only 17 years old. And I said, okay. so I went out with uh, the guy who was running it. He was a senior at Penn State at the time. Uh, And I went out that summer and did a practice run with him to make sure I understood the river. I memorized every turn, every rock, had maps, uh, and he showed me exactly how to run the river. When I returned after my freshman year in college, the next summer, I was 18 years old, and I went out on my first trip with 30 teenagers and the river had risen exponentially because of heavy rains in the spring, and I didn't recognize the first big rapid that we came upon. The protocol was to stop, get out of the canoes, go to the side, talk your way through, and then all of them would watch me go through with one one of the kids, typically uh, uh, one of the, the stronger kids, and we would have a safety line down the river in case somebody fell out or the river uh, the canoe turned and so forth, but in this particular case, uh, I didn't recognize the turn, and I got into the rapids and couldn't get out. And I had five canoes behind me with uh, 10 kids in each, in all of them. So I just turned around, and I said, follow me, uh, because there was no way to get to the side at that point. Well, we lost two canoes. Uh, kids came out, uh, they floated down the river to lost one of the canoes in a rock formation, and I got caught up there. And I didn't want to go back on my very first trip to the camp director and explain to him why I had lost his 17 and a half foot Grumman canoe. So I I picked the biggest kid in the group and I said, you and I are going to go out and get that. So we went up river, we uh, floated down to the canoe so we could shake it loose from the rocks that it was hung up on. And being the bright person that I am, I thought I can move a lot more easily if I take this life jacket off I made the kid keep his on but I took mine off wow was that a mistake <laughs> that was my first mistake uh, so we got down to the thing it was about five feet of water the move water was moving very very quickly we were able to shake it loose and as it started to move down the river I yelled at him grabbed the canoe and he uh, reached out grabbed the canoe and it carried him down the canoe was floating I reached out and I missed the canoe and that's the last thing I remember for what seemed like an hour Uh, Obviously, that wasn't an hour, but I went down in the rapids towards the bottom, got banged up on all the rocks and had one of those classic movie scenes where you come gasping out of the water at some point, nearly drowning, and I couldn't feel anything in my legs. Uh, So I was able to get to the side, just using my hands, pull myself up on the side of the river, and uh, it took me about 20 minutes to get the feeling back in my legs. So we ended up getting back, getting all the canoes, all the kids were okay, but I learned a very powerful lesson in that. And one of the things I talk about in my book is that the prefrontal cortex of your brain is developing until about age 25. Remember, I was about 18 years old. And uh, the prefrontal cortex is part of the brain that controls impulse inhibition and energy, you know, impulses and Uh, those kinds of things. Goal planning, organization, it feeds the reward system. And it isn't fully formed until about age 25. And that's why young people are uh, risk takers. That's the reason some of them are adrenaline junkies. And that's why some of them make stupid decisions just like I did on that river that day. And I was almost drowned. And so I learned a lesson from that. As I went into the army years later, I knew that I had young people who were in that age bracket, 18 to 22 and so forth, who would be taking risks that they shouldn't and could put themselves at great risk. So for all of your listeners who have younger siblings or coworkers or something or in that age group, recognize uh, that they are a higher risk level uh, just because of the development of their brain. It isn't quite fully formed yet, and they will take risks that perhaps the rest of us wouldn't take.
0: Yeah, well, thank you. I, I That's a great story with some really great uh, life lessons there. Uh, another st- um, chapter in your book, you talk about what rocks are in your jar. Uh, maybe you can explain that metaphor to us and talk about your personal experience uh, with your sister's suicide and how that relates and the lesson we can take away from that.
1: So some of your listeners may have heard this story. Um, It's common. I picked it up along the way. It's one of the rocks I put in my rucksack and carried with me. But imagine a professor standing in front of his class. He's got a table that's got a cloth over the top of it. And he reaches under and he grabs a big glass jar and he sets it up on the table. And then he pulls out a basket of rocks and he starts putting rocks in the jar until it fills up to the top. And he turns to the class and he says, is the jar full? And they all go, yep, jar's full. So he reaches under the table again and pulls out a bag of sand and he pours that into the jar and all the sand granules go down to the bottom of the jar, fill it up to the top and when it gets to the top, he then says to the class, is the jar full? And they all go, well, you fooled us the first time, Uh, but yeah, now the jar is full. So then he pulls out a pitcher of water and he pours it in the jar and the water goes down among the rocks and among the sand to the bottom and then eventually fills up to the top. And he says to the class, is the jar full? And now they don't know what to say because he, they can't imagine what else he could put in this jar. Uh, but he stops there and he says, you know, I don't have anything else to put in the jar. But the moral of the story is the rocks represent what's most important in your life. Put the rocks in the jar first. If you don't put the rocks in, uh, then, then uh, nothing else matters. If you put the sand and the water in first, you won't get every rock in. The rocks represent, uh, and you have to identify what they are. It's your family, it's your faith, it's your health, it's making money. It almost doesn't matter what it is. But figure out what are your priorities in your life. Identify those rocks and put them in the jar first because everything else is noise. So I had a uh, friend who went to West Point, and West Point has reunions. And uh, he was a retired colonel. He went back to a reunion one time, and he saw a classmate of his sitting over at the bar by himself. Now, the classmate had uh, done very, very well. He was a retired three-star general, but he was sitting by himself. His back was turned to him. We'll call him John. And my friend went over, and he tapped John on the shoulder, and he said, hey, John, how you doing? I'm seen you in a long time. And when John turned, his eyes were watery, and my friend said I couldn't tell whether he was upset or he'd had too much to drink. So I said, John, you doing okay? And he said, you know, I busted my tail for 36 years. I did everything the Army told me to. Uh, They rewarded me with promotions and great jobs and command assignments. And along the way, my wife left me, and now my kids won't talk to me. So you have to reflect back now on this officer's career and ask yourself, which rocks did he put in the jar first? He appears that he put in the career rock, and maybe he left a uh, family rock On the outside. So recognize that when you go after things uh, that are uh, ambitious and lofty goals, they come sometimes with some serious risks. So back to my sister, my sister committed suicide in on Christmas Eve of 1999. And when she died, and I got notified, I was on vacation in Hawaii with my parents celebrating the turn of the millennium. And we were having Christmas dinner with some friends when the phone rang, and it was the Army Operations Center, and they told me that my sister had died, and they didn't know the circumstances at the time. So on Christmas night of 1999, I took my parents out uh, on the grounds of this hotel that we were staying at and sat them down on a picnic table and told them that they had lost their only daughter. My mother fell off the bench onto the ground. My father sat there in stunned silence. And it was only a couple of days later that we found out how she died and that she had taken her own life. And I won't get into the reasons for all of that, but as I reflected on that episode, I thought at the time, let me reflect on my life and my family and what's important to me. What rocks are in my jar? Am I putting the right rocks in my jar? Because I was a one-star general at the time uh, and I was on the two-star list. So I was doing pretty well in the army and continuing to rise. But I did a little evaluation and I told the Army, look, I would like to retire two years from now when I hit 30 years service. And the reason I'd like to retire is like to focus my efforts, my energy and my time and my priorities on my family, not my career. Because when you become a general in the Army, you kind of lose your personal life. Uh, They sort of take it over. It's 24-7. And the Army tried to talk me out of that, but uh, I stayed the course. I retired. My daughter, who was about 14 at the time, uh, went to the same high school the last couple of years in Florida after I retired. She went to the University of Central Florida, commuting from home for the four years she was in college. She turned a part-time gig at Disney World into a full-time job, has been promoted several times at Disney World is happily married, owns her own home, travels all over the world. She turned out exactly the way I had hoped she would when she was a young teenager. And I give 95% of the credit to her, but the 5% that I take is that I made a decision which rocks to put in my jar back when I reflected on my sister's life and how she ended her life. And I said, you know, I need to kind of make sure that I've got my priorities right. And it turned out, right, just the way I would, would have hoped to.
0: I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership. will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. Yeah, well, you know, my deepest condolences for the loss of your sister. That's a, a horrible situation. It is wonderful though that that it provided a catalyst for you to have that kind of self-reflection and that, that has, you know, a really great positive that has come from a great tragedy is that it, it shaped the, you know, the last 20 years of your life uh, and allowed you to go perhaps in a, in a different direction that was, you know, more healthy and better for you and your family. And that's wonderful. Um, And I've, I've always really loved the rocks in the jar metaphor. Uh, it's it's one I remember learning even when I was just a small child. Um, and, and I've always carried that with me. It's, it, it, it is a powerful um, lesson that you can't always fit everything in. Uh, when you prioritize, you can fit more things in. But even then, there's still sometimes things you have to make a hard choice on and, and uh, leave some things to the side. Uh, but ultimately, if you know what your values are, and you prioritize your core values, and you focus on those, uh, you're going to be happy, and you're you're going to have a fulfilled life, and your needs will be you know taken care of. I, I'm confident in that.
1: Yeah, it's important to have balance in your life. I I would uh, encourage your listeners to go look up a documentary on HBO called The Weight of Gold. It was produced and starred uh, Michael Phelps, who probably won or didn't probably he won one more gold medal than any Olympic athlete in the history of the Olympics. And he did this documentary to draw attention to the fact that when people put all their rocks in, a, in one, one jar, you know they try to squeeze everything they possibly can to be the very best at the, what they can. It comes with sacrifice. It truly does. After he won his, uh, after he finished his last Olympics, he looked in the mirror and he said, the only thing I can identify myself is uh, as a swimmer. And that's it. What's, you know, what's the rest of my life going to be like? And here's a guy who is world famous, who crashed after that and almost committed suicide. And he freely admits that in this documentary. And he talks about some of his other Olympic athletes who did, in fact, commit suicide. So for your listeners, recognize that you may be anxious to become one of the 1% uh, that is the best in whatever it is that you do. Uh, but recognize that it sometimes comes with risks and it comes with costs that you may not even see when you're climbing that ladder.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, something else you talk about is the roles of personality. Uh, now, every leader has their own style. They have personality and communication styles, their approaches and how they interact with their people. And 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 people in our teams, uh, they also have their own unique styles. So Why is it so important that we not only understand ourselves, but those we lead? Uh, And and how can we leverage personality differences uh, as we lead our organizations?
1: Yeah, so uh, the first chapter of my book is on character. And one of the components of character is having good self-awareness. Who are you? And do you see yourself through the same lens that other people do? Or are you capable of doing that? And that's very important. I took my first uh, personality test, the Army uh, issued it uh, or had us take it when I was in the mid 80s at a mid-level school for uh, officers, Command and General Staff College. It was called Myers-Briggs. And you can go online and find that and take the test yourself and determine what kind of personality you have. I've probably taken that test half a dozen times in the ensuing 40, 35 years or so. I always come out the same. Uh, So I know pretty good, pretty well, exactly what my personality is. Myers-Briggs categorizes each of the personalities into 16 different buckets, and they assign letters. And the letters obviously stand for something. I'm an ISTJ. ISTJ stands for introverted, sensing, thinking, and judgmental. So if you look at introverted, I am an introvert on the extreme scale. Um, Others are extroverts on the other end. And I tell people that if your organization was made up of people just like you, you'd have a pretty bland, vanilla, and boring organization. If everybody was an ISTJ, uh, you would be missing some skill sets uh, that ISTJs just don't have have, uh, because there are strengths and weaknesses for each of these 16 different profiles. So the military, and I know the corporate world sometimes, uh, gives these personality tests in, uh, in their journey through training, and I've taken it, as I said, a number of times. So that not only can you see who you are, but you can understand who others are, and you can appreciate that every one of the other 15 profiles in Myers-Briggs, ESM, EFMPs, and so on and so forth, they bring a skill set that perhaps you don't. And you want to maximize the value of strengths of others and minimize their weaknesses. So having a an appreciation and understanding of who you are and who your rest of your team is, uh, is important. It doesn't have to be Myers-Briggs. It could be any other kind of an assessment tool, uh, but understanding to draw on the strengths and weaknesses of everybody else. I have a presentation that I often gave in new organizations when I joined them called Weldon on Weldon, and I did that very early on to make sure everybody didn't spend the next two or three months trying to figure out who I was, what I thought was important, what my personal quirks were, and everything else. And in there, I talk about, hey, I'm an ISTJ. And for those of you that haven't taken Myers-Briggs, this is what that means. And there's a definition. This uh, Weldon on Weldon brief happens to be Appendix B in my book. So you can actually see the brief in my book. But I also talk about strengths and weaknesses and freely admit that. Here's where I think I have strengths, and here's where I think I have weaknesses. And I've had those validated by people who I've worked with, worked for, and, I have, um, and have worked for me uh, over the years. So I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin. I'm also pretty self-aware, and I think that's one of the uh, most important aspects of a leader is to have that self-awareness so that you can see yourself through the lens that other people see you. Uh, That's critically important.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Self-awareness is key. And it doesn't really matter which personality you are. Uh, You know, there's been lots and lots of studies on leadership and lots of leadership models and theories and one thing, I mean, there's few things we know for sure, but one thing I know for sure about leadership is there's no one size fits all <laughs> approach, uh, and it's totally fine for people to have their own styles and approaches. Uh, and that's the same, you know, same thing with personality. And uh, it, but it's 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 really really vital that we have that kind of self awareness. Um, Craig, maybe th- the last point we can touch on today, um, you talk about having a plan B you know, I think that that's a good lesson for all of us, you know, in any walk of life. Uh, but I think in our career, it's, it's certainly something that's important. Can you speak to that just a little bit more uh, and, and we'll close with that for today. Yeah.
1: So let me tell you this uh, through a story uh, after I retired from the army and I had been in Florida for a couple of years, the army contacted me and they said, would you be willing to come to San Antonio and speak at a breakfast to the parents of the All-America Bowl participants. Now, what is the All-America Bowl? It is bringing together the best high school football players in the country, forming two teams, an East team and a West team, and the Army sponsors this all-star team every year. And they wanted me to come out and talk to the parents about having a plan B. Specifically, they would like these these college athletes uh, or these high school athletes who are all, for the most part, headed to college on football scholarships to have a plan B. Because as you look at the career path of a high school um, athlete, a football player who might be an all-stater, and you say, okay, where does he go from here? Does he go to one of the best football schools? Uh, does he start? Does he star? Does he get into the NFL? Does he last three years so that he can be vested for retirement? I mean, those are all gates that become – Smaller and smaller and smaller as you get up uh, towards the end. Not everybody's going to grow up and be a, you know, a, a world-renowned uh, football player. Uh, and when you look at the statistics of these superb high school football players, the numbers that actually make it into the pros, and certainly the ones that make it beyond three years of vesting for retirement, are in the single-digit percentile. It is very, very small. But every single one of them, and quite frankly, many of their parents thought they would get there because they had been surrounded by these accolades all their life, their short life, but all their life of 17 years about how good they are. So they wanted me to give a presentation to to the parents to make sure their kids had a fallback plan. So if something happens like a catastrophic injury, which ends their football career, or their talent just fell a little bit short and they couldn't get into the pros. They didn't put all their eggs in one basket. And so I gave a presentation to them. Obviously, they were leaning towards, you know, join ROTC and you don't even have to go into the active duty military. You could go into the reserve, but that gives you a plan B. Um, and I think that's important for everybody. If you put all your eggs in one basket, once you drop the basket, every egg is, is at risk of breaking
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good reminder. I I think we all, you know, have goals. We all have plans. uh, We hope they work out. Um, We've talked about this in previous episodes together, but, you know, rarely are we on a perfectly linear upward path, right? We usually are zigzagging a little bit. Things rarely go to plan exactly the way we hoped they would. And so it, it's it's just good sense that we we should have some sort of a plan B. Now, does that mean that we give up on our dreams that we don't push to achieve? No, um, they're not they're not mutually exclusive. You know, I can I can be prepared for various um, situations in my future while still trying my best to follow my passion. And, and that's certainly what I would suggest to anyone uh, listening, you know, and, and as we're leading our people, we want to help them do the same thing. We want them to, to find um, success in their current role. We want to prepare them for their future roles. And we uh, need to help them recognize that, you know, things aren't always going to go according to plan or on the timeline that they have in their mind. Hopefully things, you know, hopefully we can help them feel fulfilled and, and help them to achieve success. Um, but we have to have some level of flexibility and and have that preparation, you know, so that we can roll with the punches that life will throw at us.
1: Yeah, if, you've, um, if your listeners have not experienced this, they will. But you will find yourself at points in your life where you're at a fork in the road and you think you're supposed to go right. And circumstances take you left. And at the time you say to yourself, why is this happening to me? I'm not supposed to be going in this direction. I should be going that way. But circumstances, whatever they may be, take you in a different direction. And I would tell you that be adaptive, be flexible. And most of the time, it turns out just okay. I have several examples, both professional and personal, where I've been at a fork in the road, gone a direction that I didn't expect to go. And not only did it turn out okay, it turned out better than it would have the other way.
0: Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Well, Craig, it has been a real pleasure talking with you today. Um, It it always is. And I really appreciate the additional insights, the stories that you've shared with us. Before we close, though, I do want to give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, uh, where they can find your book. And then if you have any final thoughts on on what we've been discussing today.
1: Well, the best way to find me is on Google. Just type in my name, Craig Weldon, W-H-E-L-D-E-N, not O-N. Many people misspell it. And my website, craigweldon.com will pop up right away. Uh, If you go to the website, you'll get a window into my soul, I think, because you'll find all kinds of stuff on there. Uh, Testimonials about my book, about me, podcasts, this podcast will eventually be on there. Um, uh, Blogs that I've done, uh, demo tape for speaking, uh, lots of information. I'm also uh, open to getting connected to people through LinkedIn. Again, just LinkedIn, Craig Weldon and you can easily find me.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you, Craig. As always, I I hope listeners will reach out, get connected with Craig, check out his book, and I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every week, and I hope you all have a great day. Thank you.